Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Leak found on key Russian oil pipeline to Germany. The cause of the breach on the Druzba pipeline is not yet known, the route's operator says. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's an author and journalist working for Peace and Social Justice. He writes extensively about U.S. foreign policy, the Middle East, and with a focus on Palestine. His latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir, Robert Fantina, as always, Robert, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Polish operator Pern has said it's discovered a leak in the Druzba pipeline section, which supplies Russian oil to Germany. The damaged half was switched off immediately, and the other string continues to operate as normal. At this point, the cause of the incidents are not known, Pern said, adding that its staff and firefighters were deployed to the site to access, to assess the situation and to uh, secure the area. This also at the same time that it's being reported that NATO is, uh, has found a once lost under, under, underwater drone under the Nord Stream pipeline, according to Gazprom. Your thoughts, Robert Fantina? Isn't that a happy coincidence that uh, the pipeline was a leak erupted and uh, suddenly NATO lost right that that same spot they found their their underwater drone. This, of course, is uh, very suspicious. Uh, The the drone apparently has been lost for some time, but uh, it's not unusual for uh, something to be put in position to be activated later on. Uh, the United States has always wanted to uh, Europe to be more reliant on the United States for energy and for really everything than it does on Russia. So it is uh, highly coincidental that this this lost uh, drone, underwater drone or submarine, uh, was located at this time and in this location. You know, Robert, I also think, um, and I've heard Alexander McCorris mention it, and I was thinking about that too. At some point, as the, as the winter gets more difficult, the I think this will come up again. This will, amongst the people in the EU, amongst particularly amongst the Germans, as they start to suffer, this right now, it's there, the, the people in charge are able to tamp the story down. I mean, the evidence is, uh, circumstantial evidence is overwhelming. But I think at some point, the people are going to look, start looking back and say, you know, that was the U.S. that did this, and they put us in a really bad position. What do you think? Yes, I agree. Because the U.S. in most of its most of its foreign policy adventures, it's very short-sighted. Uh, this is going to cause additional suffering to the people of Europe. Uh, they're going to have uh, less gas for heating, for cooking, and so on. Winter is approaching, and that's when it's going to go, the, the impact is going to really be felt. And people are going to start asking questions. They're going to they're going to be cold. They're going to be unemployed. They're going to be hungry. 
and they're going to wonder, how did this happen? And they'll look at these situations and put two and two together. It doesn't take a genius to come up with four. You know, in reading the the first story, one of the things that I found interesting is that it said that the, okay, so they find a leak, the damaged half was switched off, and the other string continues to operate. Well, when we hear about the blowing up of Nord Stream 2, they blew up one string A, did not blow up string B. Well, it seems to me as though in reading these stories about these different pipelines, there are, there's more than one string running through a pipeline. And so the United States seems to have made a huge miscalculation in not destroying the Nord Stream 2 in its entirety because now they can turn up B. I think if there were protests last week in Germany about turn on Nord Stream, turn on Nord Stream, there's going to be even more pressure now. The United States has been exposed. And oh, by the way, not only do they find the drone, but the drone, this lost drone, uh, carries a 1.4 kilogram shaped charged warhead, which is intended to destroy sunken, unexploded munitions and mines. So this whole story is really unraveling right before the United States' very eyes. It is unraveling. It's uh, There's a limit to how many coincidences can be accepted by somebody before they start realizing that it's not a coincidence, it's a plan. And this just shows again that the United States believes that its military will accomplish its goals, that there's no point in diplomacy, uh, there's no point in adherence to international law or human rights, as long as the U.S. has the bombs and the soldiers and the weapons to make things happen, whether that's invading a country or destroying a pipeline, then it will do it. It doesn't have to worry about the niceties of diplomacy. It doesn't have to worry about international law because it puts itself above international law. So we will see this, hopefully, more information about this come out, although the news media is almost completely controlled by the government. So how much will be really revealed is yet to be seen. Well, the other thing is, this is like the um, the copycat, you know, killer. Whenever there's some kind of a weird shooting and somebody does something really strange, right off the bat, you're like, oh, no, some crazy person out here is going to do it exactly the same way. It's almost inevitable. And when the U.S. attacked, which I'm saying it because the, 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 the evidence is so overwhelming, I'm not pussyfooting around the issue. Mm-hmm. When the U.S. blew up that pipeline, it was inevitable that somebody else would see a pipeline and say, hey, what about the Druze pipeline. I bet we could blow that one and that you would get this cascade effect. And now in Europe, anybody who thinks somebody else shouldn't be getting something, there's an easy route to it. They started this and I don't think it's going to end well of blowing up the energy infrastructure of other countries and not their enemies, their allies. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Well, and the U.S. is, as, as has happened many times in the past, the U.S. will start something in motion that it simply can't control. Uh, it started, for example, the war in Iraq, which turned out to just feed on terrorist activities and anti-U.S. Uh, sentiment around the world. It's doing the same thing here. And other countries will model the U.S. behavior uh, in order to achieve their goals, whatever they might be. So this is, again, the United States uh, government being very short-sighted, uh, very violent, and ignoring of the human costs of its actions. And to that point, 
there's a Mint Press piece, can Europe afford to turn the blind eye to evidence of a U.S. role in pipeline blast? The sabotage of the two Nord Stream pipelines leaves Europeans certain to be much poorer and colder this winter and was an act of international vandalism on an almost unimaginable scale. The attacks severed Russian gas supplies to Europe and caused the release of enormous quantities of methane gas, uh, the prime offender in global warming. And we, I don't think we've seen much analysis to this point making the point that, A, this was an act of war by the United States, and as Garland just alluded to, on its German ally and on the economy of its German ally and the countries that get their natural gas through the distribution points in Germany. Um, and so to your point, Robert, this wasn't very well thought through in terms of, of long-term impact. And so the question really belies us, how long will it take for Europe to decide if I got friends like this, I do not need enemies. The problem with that is that they're so reliant on the United States for for trade and uh, military support and and, and other other uh, aspects of their their infrastructure and their their economy. Uh, remember when the U.S. when Donald Trump pulled out of the JCPOA, the heads of state in Europe begged him not to do so. But he didn't care. He would just sabotage. He would just uh, sanction them if they didn't go along. So they are still very, very dependent on the United States. So even as the United States might uh, damage or even wreck their economies, cause untold suffering to their people, until they can begin to establish strong uh, economic ties with other countries, uh, China, Russia, Iran, and others, then they're still going to be dependent on the United States. As much as they don't like it. And much as they know that the United States damages them as much as it helps them, they still, at this point, have nowhere to go. Another important issue that I'd, I'd like to get your your your, your, uh, your, your considerations on are how, the, the media response. One of the things I think that is conspicuous is the infamous uh, Sherlock Holmes, the dog that didn't bark. And that is, if the U.S. and its allies, colonies, whatever you want to call them, really believed that Russia did this, it would be 24-7 on the news. That's all they would talk about, the evidence. But conspicuously... There's nothing about it. Just a, um, a slight no mention of it, and then they're quiet about it all the time. And we recently had a um, uh, there was a, some video that came out of Dr. Jeffrey Sachs on Bloomberg, and he said <laughs> the evidence is overwhelming. The U.S. did it, and the um, talking heads got mad. They attacked him, but it was out there. Your thoughts on the media response to this uh, to the to the pipeline explosion? Well, I mentioned earlier that the U.S. controls the media in many ways. Uh, it extends great influence. It gives the media many of its talking points. The media, many media outlets, clear things with the government before they they release them. So this is this what you're saying is absolutely true. The United States doesn't want this information revealed, and so except for independent. Uh, outlets such as Mint Press News, which which you were talking about one of the articles today, uh, it, we won't see it on a CNN or MSNBC or that sort of thing, or those Fox News certainly. Uh, we have to look at other other sources that are more independent, that aren't beholden to the U.S. government, and that don't take their marching orders from the U.S. government. The fact that 
this has not been broadcast as a Russian sabotage or, or Iranian sabotage, or the U.S. government is always trying to blame things on Iran, uh, indicates that the government knows more about this than it is saying and doesn't want those facts to come out. And there's a great piece in the popular resistance, U.S. media's intellectual no-fly zone on U.S. culpability in Nord Stream attack. And what this piece does very, very clearly is it lays out the history of U.S. opposition, both from a policy perspective as well as from a media perspective, articulating those policy positions over time that this is a pipeline the U.S. never wanted and this was a pipeline that the U.S. has been very consistent in stating we were never going to allow this thing to be turned up. We got a minute and a half. And Biden said when he was, uh, before the invasion of Ukraine, that if uh, Russia did invade, that would be the end of the pipeline. And he was asked, how would that be done? And he said, trust me, uh, we can do it. And, and they've done it now. Why would the United States uh, want gas to come from Russia when it can charge more to sell uh, Europe its own gas? Uh, so it's, it's a simple thing. Again, power and profits, those are the, those are the gods of the U.S. government. Uh, and the fact that Russia is selling its gas to Europe, is helping the Russian economy and siphoning profits that the United States could get. Those are two things the United States will not tolerate, a loss of its profits and power to uh, the Russian government. And, and as we get out, Joe Biden made that statement with Olaf Scholz standing right next to him, and Olaf Scholz didn't say a word. Schultz's silence to me was more deafening than Biden's comment. We got 30 seconds. Uh, uh, We're seeing, again, the influence of the United States on foreign leaders, and uh, it's just another more more evidence of it. Um, Germany knows that if there's no pipeline, that they're going to be without gas, or they have to pay to the nose for it. And yet uh, Schultz was, uh, heard that, heard the, the planned sabotage of the pipeline and didn't say a word. Robert Fantina, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. My pleasure as always. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post has a piece entitled, Xi's looming third term in China raises threat of war over Taiwan. The Post writes, it's a reality dawning on more of the island's 23 million people as 
Chinese leader Xi Jinping's determination to resolve the Taiwan question grows in tandem with this ambition to realize China's place at the top of the global order. Xi's pursuit of these goals risks a wider military conflict that would pit China against the United States and its allies in Asia. What in the world are they drinking? Well, for insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer, uh, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. Hi, Garland. I, I, so, I have to say I agree with you about the Washington Post piece. It's about as flimsy, one-sided, uh, not lacking of any any balanced point of view as you could hope to read and um, it's a terrible piece it doesn't say <laughs> it, it, it it completely distorts the picture you know where where first of all china reacted to pelosi's visit and showed the west and taiwan that they can capture taiwan if they want to us Provokes Taiwan, uh, provokes China by arming Taiwan by threaten by building an arms depot in Taiwan. Now, if that's not a warlike gesture, I don't know what is. <coughs> the piece did not mention. <coughs> excuse me. Taiwan has a huge trade surplus with mainland. That trade surplus basically keeps Taiwan economy going. Major companies in Taiwan are all established in mainland, making a lot of money selling to the mainland Chinese, food stuff, high tech, what have you, you name it. Foxconn is there building Apple iPhones on the mainland. The whole economic linkage is strongly, strongly tied. They didn't mention, the article didn't mention the fact that Taiwan since back in Chen Shui-bian era, changed the textbook and <clears throat> convinced the young people that they're really Taiwanese and not Chinese, have no linkage to Chinese history and culture. No wonder the young kids that this reporter re- interviewed say, hey, we're ready to pick up arms, defend our homeland, and fight, whereas a generation older, their parents are saying, we don't want to be like Ukraine. We're going to get killed if we think that we can fight the, the PLA. So there's a lot of perspective not included in this particular very flimsy piece. Um, I guess the piece is doing what the $300 million uh, budget calls for, the $300 million by the Biden administration to prevent to present a very slanted point of view of what's going on around the world. You know, I see that as pretty much everything else in the Washington Post as war propaganda. Let me read two things. By 2027, the Chinese military may be capable of launching a full attack on Taiwan. I kind of think they could do it now if they wanted to. But listen to this. To me, here's all you need to read in the piece. We don't have much time to prepare ourselves, and our resources are far less than China's, 
It's an extreme imbalance. This is another Vladimir Zelensky-style war propaganda. We got to have more weapons. Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, man, those guys got to eat. And you got to make a move because they're hungry right now. <laughs> Your thoughts, yeah. George? Well, well, you know, the, the, the hostility hasn't even begun yet. And Taiwan is running out of weapons already. And we got to <laughs> stock them up. It's, it's a... Um, it's setting up a straw man to justify whatever it is that we're looking to justify. And, and, and the truth is, the reality is that we are trying to push Taiwan and China into a war. And, and hopefully, from the Washington point of view, it will be a proxy war just like the Ukraine war is, is, uh, is doing. You know, the Ukrainians are dying and the Russians are dying, too. Hey, Uncle Sam is having a, a great time watching from the sidelines. We cannot be so naive as to think China will not attack. The front line is no longer just in the West. Now the East Coast is a front line. Across Taiwan, citizens are thinking more seriously about the possibility of war, inspired in part by Ukraine's resistance against Russia. Wait a minute, Ukraine started that fight. Russia, <laughs> uh, for many, the question is not when, the, for many, the question is when, not if, Beijing will make good on its threats. George, is China well, threatening? Think, you, yeah. uh, help me out here, yeah. man. <laughs> Threat. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Before you, before you answer, let me say this. This article yeah. is so bad that when I read it, I immediately thought about you. Well, thank you. <laughs> I said, I got to talk to George. <laughs> I, I am now associated with all the bad articles. Thank you, Will, very much. <laughs> no, I, I said, I need George to help me decipher this foolishness. So go ahead, George. <laughs> Well, it, 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 you, you just made me lose my train of thought here. <laughs> well, well, while the train gets back on track, um, one of the things I find very interesting in all of the statements that I just read, they offer zero evidence. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, um, we say that, that this is what they're going to do, and therefore they're going to do it, and it, it's all – coming out of Washington, or in this case, Washington Post, putting words and action in, in, in the place of PLA, in the place of Beijing, there, there is no factual uh, basis to it. But then they just keep piling it on, you know. And, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. What can I say, you know? Well, the the if if we're going to move on to the next subject about the semiconductor fiasco, let's go ahead. It's and do all it. Linked. Go ahead. Linked, right. Go ahead. All right. So what we have here in the semiconductor fiasco is the DPP president Tsai Ing-wen saying, "Oh, TSNC is safe and secure in Taiwan. It's not a security risk because we support we supply more than ninety percent of all the advanced chips to the world." And, and nobody's going to want to disturb uh, that. So that's one of her statements. The other statement, of course, is coming. I don't remember who it was coming from her message. Oh, yeah, we are vulnerable and at risk because um, as soon as the PLA takes over, they will run the plan. And that's why, 
you know, the U.S. is putting a putting a noose on the on the whole technical team at TSMC and take them out of, on the charter plane at a second at a moment's notice. And of course, since they can't move the TSMC plant out, they're gonna they're gonna rig it and blow it up so that nobody can have it. So entirely two different points of view are being presented uh, on this fiasco. And then, of course, they did interview Morris Chang, the founder and originated uh, of the TSMC, and he gave a pretty no-nonsense answer, according to the uh, Taiwan media. He says, hey, in times of war, we're going to be all in trouble. Everything is going to be destroyed and blown up, and that includes TSMC. What he has not said, and, and, and in fact, no one in the Taipei administration has said, is that a lot of the TSMC people, that, or former TSMC people, are already on the mainland China helping the, the, the mainland Chinese operations build up their capability. The mainland operation has ordered a scat of uh, ASML the second gen, not the first, not the latest generation, but one generation older. Uh, they call it the EUV uh, lithographic um, machines, which will enable China to produce not necessarily the most advanced, but a advanced enough chips to serve their purpose for quite some time. And of course, we're already hearing that they're making certain breakthroughs to go around. The um, embargo and the sanctions that uh, Biden has emit, has placed, and I don't know if we ever talked about the piece I posted, but basically the whole semiconductor fiasco is what I call Biden's rule-based disorder, because this is completely disrupting the entire semiconductor uh, worldwide semiconductor industry. And it's going to leave everybody in shambles, and that includes U.S. Silicon Valley equipment companies like Applied Materials and Lamb Research. It's going to apply to advanced chip designs like AMD and NVIDIA, and, and as a matter of fact, their stock has been tumbling. It will affect TSMC, of course, because they have to give up a major market, which is, a, which is China. Um, and um, it's going to hurt the Koreans because they are, China is their major customer. The whole idea of a globalized semiconductor industry is going to be left in tatters. Um, and, and I give President Biden credit as the promulgator of uh, rule-based disorder. And by the way, the, the Taiwanese commentators, they quoted me on this piece and they all laughed. They thought that was really funny use of words. Uh, EU prosperity, uh, Joseph Burrell has said that Brussels has relied too heavily on Moscow's energy in Beijing's production. They're saying that, you know, our prosperity has been based on Russia, dependent on Russia and China, and they're trying to get away from it at the behest of the U.S. But what they're really looking at is simply a, a, a man-made economic uh, implosion, that they're saying we can do okay because of these people, but for some reason it's bad. For some reason they shouldn't. Yeah. They should just be impoverished. Your thoughts, George? Yeah. Well, he he is, you know, it's very remarkable that he could be so smart at the same time so stupid. Smart because he pointed out, hey, the, the cheap 
energy from Russia is what keeps our economy so strong, keeps our plants operating, and and our trade relationship with China is also strength keeps our economics going. And then he turned around and said, but these are all bad. You know, we're dealing with bad actors and that we need to listen to the U.S. because the U.S. is leading us down down the drain. And that's good. So it's not making any sense. But that seems to be the rationale. And it, it also applies, unfortunately, to this um, this joke of a prime minister from uh, from U.K. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> well, and just quickly following up on that, the U.K., the head of Britain's cyber intelligence agency accuses China of trying to rewrite the rules of international security, saying Beijing yeah. is using its economic and technological clout to clamp down at home and exert control abroad. Uh, we've got about a minute. Okay. He is using the same kind of logic as Borrell or illogic because it just, it's only a short, short couple administration ago when the prime minister of UK was head over heel, friendly, buddy, buddy with Xi Jinping, giving him the biggest welcome and betting on the UK's future on closer cooperation with, um, with China. And then Boris Johnson came on and Trump made him tear up billions of dollars of 5G infrastructure they put in with uh, in cooperation with Huawei. And they, they did that without even blinking an eye, without even complaining, without even looking for compensation. And now where, where they are, they are now in tatters. They are having okay. the worst inflation ever. The country's in ruin. And they don't blame it on the U.S., they blame it on China. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Nice to be with you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post reports Biden scrambles to avert cracks in pro-Ukrainian coalition. Even as Biden scrambles to hold together his global coalition, cracks are showing in the political support at home for the billions in aid the U.S. is sending Ukraine. Those fissures are likely to widen significantly if Republicans recapture the House on November 8th. A Pew Research poll shows that the share of Americans who are extremely or very concerned about a Ukrainian defeat fell from 55% in May to 38% in September. What are we to make of this, and will these numbers reflect a real substantive change in U.S. policy? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia, Professor Nikolai Petro. As always, sir, welcome back. Nice to be here. So the piece, uh, they write, early in the war, Zelensky was calling repeatedly and publicly on the U.S. and other countries to do more, to send more weapons, impose harsher sanctions, uh, even as Biden and Congress were already sending unprecedented amounts of money uh, to his government. 
And they write, Biden understood as a fellow politician, Zelensky had to advocate forcefully, but he told Zelensky it would be hard for him to keep asking Congress for money if Zelensky appeared ungrateful and kept saying it was not enough. Well, Zelensky continues to demand, and from what I can see, the United States is still sending money. So help me out with this analysis. Are you seeing the same types of fissures that the Washington Post is reporting? Well, by reporting it, then the Washington Post also creates the impression of a fissure. Mm -hmm. So uh, some sort of political wheeling dealing is going on, but it's very hard for us mere mortals to grasp what is really going on behind the curtain. Uh, it's so what would Zelensky is always going to ask for more. And the problem, as I see it, is the rhetorical commitment to do whatever it takes mm -hmm. on the part of the United States. I wouldn't single out Biden. Uh, we're all by now familiar with Tulsi Gabbard's, um, and denunciation of um, both the leadership of the Democratic and Republican Party as a warmongering cabal. And I think, unfortunately, that tends to be more accurate than not. So if there is a transition of power in Congress, um, I'm not sure how much of a change in America's foreign policy toward Ukraine to expect. I guess I would actually expect very little. You know, I've noticed, you know, as you probably know, I do radio other places and appearances other places. And lately I've been saying to my audience, look, you know, my position is what it is. Yours is what it is, is what it is. But none of us want to die in a nuclear holocaust. We need to, you know, this thing needs to stop. We need to find a way to end it for the best of all. OK, for a while that didn't get much traction. Now I find that callers and that people all, all with almost, you know, with almost no exception, say, yes, I, even those who had vehemently disagreed with me about the facts of the of, of this particular conflict and who was um, right or wrong are coming around to, hey, we need to end this thing. It's dangerous. Henry Kissinger started. Now Elon Musk. Now Donald Trump. Now Admiral Mullen, head of the former chiefs, chiefs, uh, for, uh, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. It seems like things, I think, from a positive perspective, spectrum, are starting to maybe move in that direction. Your thought, Dr. Petro? Well, answer me this then. How do we walk back our total commitment to Ukrainian victory over Russia? Yeah, I wish I had that How answer. How do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, I guess we... Well, a actually, that, that's, to... why we're, that's why we're asking you. Yeah, you're supposed <laughs> to fix it. You're, you're, the, a, you're the one's going to fix a, that one. I have a strategy, which would be <laughs> gradually uh, you send out indications through uh, your subordinates that victory can mean many different things. Mm -hmm. and that Ukraine's victory <laughs> lies in... Well, a survival and that that, that um, a peace in Ukraine that would be a, a peace uh, acceptable to uh, to all uh, would indeed uh, 
bolster the attractiveness of all the things that Ukraine wants, including a special relation, a special security relationship, and uh, more investment. And oh, but all of that can only begin once the fighting stops. And so you make your priority what it should have been from the beginning, <laughs> but was not, which is stop the fighting, then negotiate. The way that the Washington Post and other elements in Western media present this is Ukraine was an independent actor and that Ukraine, by being an independent actor, is now being victimized by the Russian bear. When in, a, when in fact, from all that I can discern, Ukraine was a willing participant in a U.S. slash NATO ploy to draw Russia into this conflict. So it, it's hard for me to grasp how Joe Biden can play this as though Zelensky is asking for things that are beyond the pale when Zelensky has been doing U.S. bidding all along and in the instances back in April when Zelensky thought he would be able to sit down with Vladimir Putin and negotiate a peace deal, Boris Johnson flies in and says, no, 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 the West is not going to back that play. You need to stay in this until the last Ukrainian dies. Well, that was then, and this is now. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I think I'm almost paraphrasing uh, former U.S. Ambassador Mike McFall <laughs> on that. Uh, we always – it's natural for countries to have to place their interests first. But that means even close allies at some point begin to diverge because our – Global interests are not Ukraine's global interests. And global, and, and right now, Ukraine's interest is, is clearly survival. The question that is still up in the air, maybe they've decided this in the uh, Pentagon. Uh, they've played out all the scenarios uh, and in and NATO military headquarters. But right now, the thing that's blocking mm, serious negotiations is still the attempt to convince the Western public that Ukraine is capable of a military victory. Uh, once that becomes, once it becomes evidence, evident that that is not going to happen, that at best what the Ukraine can do is prolong the conflict, bleeding itself on behalf of as Zelensky puts it, on behalf of the freedom of the West, well, then I think for all intents and purposes, it becomes a sacrificial lamb that the West just needs to uh, sort of um, uh, disengage itself from, find a, find a convenient way to disengage itself from, as we have done numerous times in the past, most recently in Afghanistan. Um, we saw about a week and a half ago the pound sterling almost crashed. The uh, the, the Bank of England had to, their the, the, their, their um, bank had to step in, and they tried to sell bonds, and nobody wanted to buy their bonds. They had to buy their own bonds. Do you think? What about that side? The fact that a currency, Germany or the UK, one of their currencies collapsed, they could hit hyperinflation. Something like that. Um, happening in one of the, well, I guess the U.S.'s allies, colonies, whatever you want to call them, and how that would affect, if you could comment on that particular circumstance, how that affects the dynamics here. 
Professor Petro? Well, um, it, it makes holding the coalition uh, together m- more difficult. But uh, that will not, th- those events do not it themselves precipitate a change in policy. They precipitate a change in government. And then we have to see what the strategies are of the new government in, in power. When the British government changed, uh, uh, changed its leadership, nothing, nothing good happened from that. Um, unfortunately, the alternatives in Germany are not any better as well. However, there is the fear of a much more radical shift lurking in the future as a result of a sequence of these kind of geostrategic uh, errors on the part of several European countries. And that is the rise of the far right, which is now not allowed into German politics. It's, It's not allowed to participate in any coalitions. But already we've seen breakthroughs in France, in Sweden, and in Italy in that direction. So mm, uh, down the road, uh, it is quite possible that we will see a, 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 a significant shift in, uh, in Western European politics. But I think we are one or two election cycles away from that in Europe. You know, you you talked about growing growing weary and it it, it and 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 changing uh, levels of support. That made me think about the U.S. backing the Kurds during the first Bush administration. I think H.W. Bush told the Kurds to go in and fight Saddam, and we would have their back. And they went in and fought Saddam, and they got slaughtered. And we just stood on the sidelines and and watched that happen. We're starting. I believe we're starting to see. Over the last just couple of days, more articles and talking about Americans growing weary of funneling all of this money to Ukraine. And we're starting, we've been hearing for now a couple of weeks, uh, Garland listed a number of them, uh, folks who are coming out, very prominent folks who are coming out in opposition of this. When, When Henry Kissinger is to the left of the Democrats. How far has our politics <laughs> and policy shifted? And do you see a change in policy resulting from this change in sentiment? I was at a conference in D.C. this past weekend where a number of us uh, academics and um former State Department officials discussed the fl- America's flight from realism and how exactly to bring it back to both reality, acknowledging reality as, as it is, and uh, a realistic policy toward reality. Um, I don't think any of us were very optimistic because one of the things that seems to affect people uh, very high in public office is the conviction that they can make things happen because they are where they are in the largest country and most important country and biggest country in the world. You know, you used to have a bank down in D.C. called Riggs. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. And I remember the ads for that bank. It was the most important bank in the most important city in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, there is no more Riggs Bank. Correct. <laughs> so uh, I wonder, unfortunately, if we're facing uh, a similar sort of um, outcome uh, in the future, sadly. Professor Nikolai Petro, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Well, thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's an interesting op-ed in the Washington Post entitled, Yes, Intervene in Haiti and Push for Democracy. After 15 months of Haiti's convulsive descent into pandemonium following the assassination of its president, there is at least serious discussion of international intervention to prevent a humanitarian disaster in the tormented island nation. Really? Now they see a problem? And they seem to conveniently have omitted the fact that the United States was behind the assassination of President Moise. For, for insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's an associate professor of black studies and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of the Black Agenda Report, Dr. Jamima Pierre. As always, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. So in this op-ed, they say uh, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez says that the uh, uh, proposed that one of the more one or more countries deploy a rapid action force immediately in response to Haiti's own plea for help to break the paralyzing grip of violence and the accelerating breakdown of infrastructure and public order. Uh, Dr. Pierre, if this were not as serious as it is, th- this would be amusing. But, uh, th- I mean, the hypocrisy here would make you laugh. Unfortunately, all it does is make you sick. Oh, definitely. Well, you know, the first thing I want to say is, uh, you know, what this shows to me um, is that all these Western and all these supposedly international institutions are not international institutions. They are um, vassals of the United States. So you think about the United Nations, which has consistently taken positions that uphold Western hegemony, um, U.S. and Western hegemony, and, and that's just Haiti. That's all over the world. Um, in every situation, you have the OAS, and it seems to me that that there is a concerted effort in the past week or so. It seems like there are all these op-eds. Everyone is making a making a statement on Haiti. When they ignored Haiti, they ignored four years worth of nonstop protest. And so, there seems to me that in response to the ongoing protest against this uh, puppet government that the U.S., the U.N., and the OAS installed into Haiti, what they're doing is doubling down and making it seem like they have nothing to do with what's going on um, in Haiti. And uh, you know, Gutierrez is 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 fascinating in, in, in the sense that he's saying the Haitian government requested um, um, uh, uh, intervention. 
when there's no Haitian government, it's a puppet government. And because the press is so stuck on its racist representations of Haiti, you can't get any real idea of what's been going on in Haiti. And people will fall for this idea that Haiti is descending into barbarism, because that's the first line. And the last line of the Washington Post article also points to you, points to this racism in terms of reporting about Haiti, because it says, you know, this failed state whose only export, whose main export is asylum seekers. <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know about the way they think about us and about the fact that they don't think we deserve anything um, but, but continued occupation. You know, it's interesting. They, they they reference a letter that was written by a number of Democratic members of Congress. You look on there and there's, you know, Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley, the so-called squad. But let me read a sentence from, from this when they talk about all that should be done. The United States must incorporate, incorporate into the 10-year plan Haitian perspectives on substantive outcomes and working methods expressed during these consultations to avoid the perception that the United States will impose its own preferred processes and outcomes on the Haitian people. Well, that's what the letter is about. The letter says this is what we should do with Haiti. We should have a 10-year plan. All of this other stuff about how the U.S. controls Haiti, which it's been doing all along, and then say, but we got to make sure that they don't have the perception that we're doing that. Your thoughts, Dr. Pierre? Well, that, that's exactly it. I feel like what's going on right now, there's a there's a PR onslaught. So you have the Washington Post, the New York Times as an editorial today. You have Brian Nichols, the, the, the Negro stooge of empire, visiting Haiti today. Um, you have, there's like this onslaught of like information. And then you have like this nonstop reporting. There's like three cases of cholera where eight dead, right, and cholera. And so all of that, you know, is setting up it's preparing, it's PR, it's, it's, it's preparing the, the global community um, um, for an invasion. And you also have the Organization of American States release a statement today that says 19 of its members um, support a, a, a military intervention. So that tells you that they, all, they are all working together right now to, 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 to basically make it seem like the problem is Haitian created, but then they're there to help and bring solution. And I want your readers to remember that it is the UN that brought cholera to Haiti that sexually abused Haitian women and girls and, and boys. Um, you know, this, the Washington Post says this. It's, it's the U.S. that deposed the Haiti, the UN and the U.S. and Canada and France that deposed Haiti's elected president. And then it's the OAS that installed Martel Lee and Jovenel Moise as president and then supported the fact that Moise was assassinated. So every single aspect of what's going on in Haiti is linked to these same people um, creating um, this instability and, and, and uh, resulting a lot of murders and death of Haitian people. But they also want to, what that letter says to me about, especially these um, the so-called uh, squad, some of the squad members, is that they all still believe in U.S. imperialism. They also believe in Haitians as these things that need to be controlled, but they just, like the Democrats, right, there are big warmongers, they just don't want you to think they are. And that's the same thing that's going on with Haiti. It's about like, you know, using this as cover to hide the fact that they're the ones, they're, the, you know, they're the biggest gangs um, in, uh, when it comes to Haiti. The Washington Post piece says, no one should take lightly the prospect of an international intervention. 
such efforts in recent decades by the Clinton administration and the U.N. have provided few long-term improvements. But there's no analysis as to why. Uh, They talk about a peacekeeping force was deployed. It provided a modicum of stability. It was responsible for introducing uh, cholera. And then they talk about some of its troops sexually abused Haitian girls and women. That, to me, is a very, very superficial uh, – um, it's not – I can't even call it an it's, – it's a, it's a superficial – it's not even an assessment. It's just superficial statements about that, – that don't get anywhere close to addressing the causes and the depth of the problem and the U.S.'s involvement in the continuation of these problems in Haiti. Right. I mean, and and that's the case. I mean, the truth is, it's all superficial. That's why people don't know what's going on in Haiti and they can get away with it. Right. This is a PR machine that, you know, that had to acknowledge the fact that Haitians don't want the U.N. there. The U.N. is deadly to Haiti. In addition to cholera that killed 40,000 people and sickened a million people, um, you know, all the all the young girls that were impregnated and sexually abused by the soldiers who had to sue the U.N. to get the soldiers to take care of their children. Um, you have all that. You have the U.N. Um, responsible for cholera never providing um, um, uh, 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 reparations or cleaning up the water system so that cholera would not outbreak. Again, all of that is, you know, they they have to mention this because people have been protesting it, but they can't bring themselves to really acknowledge that you know, the the crisis in Haiti is a crisis of Western imperialism, and it's a racist white supremacist crisis. Um, and that is really brought upon a people that um, that have been suffering under Western imperialism for more than 200 years. And I have to say, it, this works in the case of Haiti because it's been 200 years of representations of Haitians as unable to protect themselves. From the moment of the, the Haitian Revolution, the Western press has been these, 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 you know, these blacks, these savages are killing whites, they're killing each other. And so the world is primed to accept this, uh, this kind of representation. So then you can have superficial analyses like this and, and get away with it. And that's exactly what's going on. I felt like they all met together last night and they decided <laughs> Washington folks, New York, Times, you know, New York Times, the OAS, the UN, everybody, we're gonna, this is the story we're going to have this week. And that's exactly what's happening. And so everybody's primed for this intervention, which is going to happen at the end of the week. Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier is a, a, a controversial and interesting um, person in um, Haiti. Um, and there's an article in HaitiLiberté.com, Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier's reaction to some police mis- misconduct. Your thought, Dr. Pierre? Well, you know, it's interesting about Cherizier. You have some people calling him the, the, the biggest murderer ever, you know, the worst man, the, the worst savage on the planet. Um, and then you have those calling him a revolutionary. And my take on Cherizier is that I think he's being scapegoated by everybody, right? It's like he's like the new bin Laden, right? Because what the West does is create the big boogeyman, right? And so you put all the crimes and everything on him and leave out the crimes of empire, <laughs> right? Like cholera or the fact that the soldiers were shooting at people and spent like 27,000 bullets in one afternoon in one tiny little uh, neighborhood. And so it's easy to really dehumanize this one person. And I think, you know, he's a former cop, I think, who's being set up and he knows he's being set up. And I'm not necessarily 
condoning him because I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't know his role, but he's not the ultimate evil person that once you kill, you'll get rid of, you know, all of Haiti's problems, but they're setting him up to be that. And I think he's right in the sense that, you know, he's telling these young men, you know, to not fall for the trap of these elites who are, you know, funding them, giving them these arms, sending them to kill local people, because what's going to happen is they're going to end up, you know, being used and then being taken out. And which is the same thing that's happening with, you know, all these arms, you know, all the all, all the guns that are being distributed to young people and then turning around and saying, well, there's a gang problem we have to solve. You know, we have a special issue on Haiti on the Black Agenda Report this week. And one of the key articles that people don't talk about is the, the white elite, the oligarch, the, the light skin and white oligarch that actually fund a lot of these, you know, these these gang, so-called gang violence and, and, and fund all of these, um, the violence that happens in these areas. And they get left out of any analysis, right? Like the oligarchs role in working with the international community to keeping the dark skinned black masses down. And so, you know, Shalizia is right in, in saying like, don't fall for this. Um, at the same time, I do want us to remember that what the US is doing is creating a bin Laden for Haiti so that they can use him as the fall guy, and, and then hide all their own um, 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 terroristic acts in Haiti. We have just about a minute and a half. What about his point that the police are using a lot of dark forces to do a lot of dirty work? And when I read that sentence, I thought about the Tonton Makut, and the Uncle Makut are mentioned in this piece. Yes, definitely. I think you know, part of, part of the, the thing, I think the U.S. supported Duvalier for a reason. The U.S. knew that the Tonto Makut were, um, were terrorizing the population. Um, these, these police, you know, are, you know, sometimes, you know, without, you know, hiding under, you know, masks and dark clothing and so on and so forth. The U.S. wants that because it wants to make the perception that this is an internal thing, that these, these, these Haitians are, are, are killing each other. And sure, there, there are people who are being paid to go and terrorize other Haitians. We see that everywhere. And I think, I think but I think those things are being um, supported by the core group, which runs Haiti, as well as the OAS and the UN. So I think, I think you know, he's right about that. And he's basically warning them that they're going to end up at the other end okay. once their use is no longer necessary. Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for having me. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back in. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. RT reports Ukraine sends message to Africa. Ukrainian Foreign Ministry Dmitry Kuliba demands the continent's leaders ditch their neutrality over the conflict in his country. 
For insight into this, uh, we turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Slavery, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuliba has called on Africa to back Kiev in an upcoming U.N. General Assembly vote to condemn last month's referendums that re- resulted in four new regions joining Russia. Quote, Africa's support is needed now more than ever. African nations must stand by international law, territorial integrity, and peace not only for condemning the strikes on Ukrainian cities, but also by opposing with a U.N. vote Moscow's annexation of the formerly Ukrainian territories his message demanded. Dr. Horn, African nations must stand by international law, territorial integrity, and peace? Well, I don't know that he made these demands when the United States overthrew the democratically elected Uh, government in Ukraine. And I have a problem with the rhetoric because it doesn't match the action. We've got European countries in the West. uh, They stand by international law, territorial integrity, and peace. You've got U.S. trained officers leading seven coups and coup attempts in Africa over the last year and a half. U.S. trained officers have attempted five coups in uh, three times in Burkina Faso, three times in Mali, and once each in Guinea, Mauritania, and Gambia. Uh, what's this guy drinking? Well, I would ask, what is he smoking? Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, what is he smoking <laughs> and drinking? Well, I, I think that it's also quite seriously an underestimation of the intellect and the political acuity of the African leaders who the foreign minister is meeting with. Uh, He must assume that they have an advanced state of either amnesia or Alzheimer's that prevents them from remembering the recent past, that prevents them from recalling what happened about a decade ago in Libya when NATO forces, led by France and the United States, uh, bombed Colonel Gaddafi's regime and leading to his execution on camera despite the fact that the African Union was pleading with Washington and Paris not to do so, despite the fact that subsequently evidence has emerged that then-French leader Sarkozy wanted to get rid of Gaddafi because of Tripoli's dealings with his political conservative parties in terms of campaign uh, donations and dead men tell no tales, and therefore that led to the execution on Camry of Gaddafi. Or perhaps there is the assumption that African leaders don't recall how the United States and NATO were in bed with apartheid South Africa virtually up until the day that Nelson Mandela was elected in 1994. Uh, This included covert and overt support for apartheid bombing campaigns in Angola, in Mozambique, including the assassination of Mozambique's founding father, Samora Michel, in the mid-1980s, not to mention apartheid illegal occupation of Namibia, now independent, a sprawling territory with 
uh, square mileage the size of Texas and California combined, but only with a population of, of about 3 million compared to Texas and California combined having populations of about 60 million, despite the fact that Namibia is awash with natural resources, including uh, diamonds and uranium. Uranium will be essential for these nuclear power plants that we are told the North Atlantic countries will be firing up because they will be cutting themselves off from Ukrainian uranium from the East and Russia. So I understand that the foreign minister has broken off his trip abruptly, uh, headed back to his capital in Kiev. He says, or it was said, that this is because of the bombing campaign that's now taking place in his homeland. But it may be because he was receiving a cold shoulder Hmm. from African leaders who have long memories and are not willing to be dragged into a losing conflict, not only a losing conflict, but a conflict amongst powers who are at odds with themselves. I'm sure you've talked on your program about what happened in Prague in the Czech Republic just a few days ago when Prince President Macron sought to organize the so-called European political community, uh, not inviting, of course, Russia, but not inviting the United States either. Because if you look at the political makeup in the United States, it's easy for European capitals to conclude that either, A, you get Trumpistas who see the European Union as a mortal enemy, as John Bolton, the SAC Trump National Security Advisor, put it in his memoir, or B, you get Democrats who drag the Europeans into unwinnable wars. So obviously, they have to carve out a new and independent path for themselves. And if the Europeans and the capitalist countries are not on the same page, how can they expect the Africans to join them? Which wing of the North Atlantic bloc should they align with? I should also mention in this context that it's just been announced that Chancellor Schultz of Berlin will be heading to to China in a few weeks. Uh, This is quite interesting because, as you know, China's in the crosshairs as far as U.S. imperialism is concerned. And I guess that Chancellor Schultz has felt, has decided that being dragged into one unwinnable conflict is more than enough. So once again, if the Europeans, like the French and the Germans, are heading for the exit, Why should the Africans join with U.S. imperialism and their toadies in Ukraine? Dr. Horn, the other thing that I think is important, you know, we the history is certainly in the colonialism and all of those things are a factor. But the other thing is, and I'll put this kind of bluntly, the African leaders are not as stupid as the European leaders. They're looking at it saying right now, today, as a leader of a country, I am required to look out for the needs, fertilizer, energy, wheat, things of that nature. And the African leaders are saying, you people may be stupid enough to starve your people, but we're not going to do it. We're going to maintain relations with the countries that can provide the commodities that we need. What do you think about that angle? Well, obviously that's accurate, but obviously, too, I should say that the African leaders feel that they will lose leverage if they sign on wholly to the North Atlantic agenda. That is to say, right now, they're perceived as being up for grabs, that they can be courted, 
And if they can be courted, that causes Mr. Biden and his General Assembly speech just a few weeks ago to offer to elevate an African nation, presumably Nigeria or South Africa, to the top table of the United Nations Security Council. And by the way, we'll get an indication of which way the political winds are blowing when we see how African and other nations vote at the General Assembly on this U.S.-sponsored resolution that seeks once again to castigate Russia. I take it that the United States has enough political sense and acuity not to force a vote that will be embarrassing. But with these incompetence and nincompoops helping to lead U.S. foreign policy, you never can be too sure. This RT piece writes, Kiev has failed to convince African leaders of their shared struggle. (laughs) What do you mean we? Uh, It claims that Russia was holding the continent hostage and was endangering the global food supply. Uh, And fortunately, they write, and this has fallen uh, largely on deaf ears. Uh, There seems to be this antiquated colonial mindset that current realities just can't seem to change. And again, to your point, it'll be very, very interesting to see how this vote goes. I think the vote uh, is scheduled to take place today. And it'll be very interesting to see how that vote goes. And if it does not go the way of the United States, uh, or if they choose not to have the vote because they know they won't to have the vote because they won't have the votes, uh, how embarrassed they will be. Well, I expect a passel of abstentions with regard to this vote today. That would not be surprising nor shocking. Uh, with regard to these North Atlantic countries, I think that we of the progressive movement have not thought too deeply, ironically enough, about the legacy of slavery and colonialism. Uh, These leaders are the descendants of slave traders and colonialists who are accustomed to getting things for free and accustomed to bludgeoning those who oppose. And so it's difficult for them to adjust to today's world when those sorts of 19th century practices are not necessarily the norm. And With regard to this so-called shared legacy, uh, it reminds me, I'm sure, of the story you're familiar with uh, concerning the radio and television uh, character, the Lone Ranger, uh, a Euro-American man riding the plains during the days of the Old West, so-called. He has the Native American companion, Tonto. The Lone Ranger is surrounded by fearsome Native American warriors about to attack and, Tonto, and Lone Ranger says, well, I guess we're in trouble now, Tonto. And, of course, Tonto says, what do you mean, we, white man? <laughs> and I think that that is where we are right now with regard to this vote at the United Nations. The African leaders are not willing to play the role of a marshmallow Tonto. If anything, they are playing the role of a Tonto in revolt. Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Somalia have suffered from a variety of U.S. interventions over many years, sanctioning the Horn of Africa and Garrison and John Pilpot, right, in the Orinoco Tribune. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, obviously, Washington has a bone to pick with Addis Ababa, with Ethiopia, 
Uh, it is the second most populous nation on the African continent. It is not far distant from the Red Sea and the oil riches of Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, Washington is in a crisis in their relations with that country, which then accentuates further their attempt to co-opt the regime in Addis Ababa. And so I think that that article that you cite is on the money because what we're seeing now in the Horn of Africa is that the South Africans have intervened. They have ignited a peace process with the parties, the Tigrayans and the Addis regime meeting in South Africa. I take it that because of the South Africans' authenticity and the leverage they have on the continent and within the African Union itself, that this should bear fruit. And if it does, it will just be one more, one further blow to the alleged purported prestige of U.S. imperialism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Major rail union rejects White House brokered proposal. As the membership of a maintenance and construction union reset the countdown to a potential work stoppage, negotiators return to the bargaining table. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. Uh, he's an independent investigative journalist and analyst and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, Daniel, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. So the Railroad Maintenance and Construction Workers Union announced that its members have rejected the tentative agreement reached last month between the unions and rail carriers, putting pressure on the carriers to offer a better deal to workers in order to avoid a nationwide strike in the coming weeks. Daniel, uh, there was light at the end of the tunnel, and unfortunately, it's an oncoming train. Right, right. Yeah, I mean it's it's a very big deal. It's uh it's very big. I mean the uh the if uh, if if rail traffic does halt, uh, number one it'll it'll have a a, a huge economic impact, um, and number two it'll uh, it'll ratchet up inflation uh, all the more. So uh, so uh, the Biden administration is facing a a, a huge crunch. Um, these economic pressures are building, and it doesn't know what to do. You know, that's the other, you know, something that you said uh, early in your comment, I think is important. We're seeing that in the EU. And that is, as the economic crunch, as things get more difficult for the day to day pe person to survive, workers say, we need more money. And they start striking. We need more. We can't afford. But the foundation of the problem is not that they're not making enough money oftentimes. It's that now you have a change economically in that there's inflation and cost of gas and all of these things up. So, and, and if they were all to actually get the amount of money that they needed, it would 
In some ways, it may make inflation even worse. So there's a, a foundational problem here that goes to do that, that has to do with the way your economic system works, Dan. Yeah, that, I think things are things are veering out of control. I mean, first of all, number one is that is that real wages have dropped by two or three percent over the last twelve months uh, due to uh, due to inflation and wage stagnation. Uh, secondly. Um, uh, uh, Working conditions have have plummeted, and that's that's true in the rail industry as it, as it is elsewhere. I mean, rail workers complain about like you know about the about really punishing, grueling schedules that have them working seven days a week uh, with with no time off, you know, for for anything, doctor's appointments, you know, uh, sick days, etc. So they are they really haven't pushed to the end of the uh, end of their rope in in multiple ways. But it's not only the U.S. that that's seeing this. In fact, the U.S. is a little be, is a little behind the curve. Uh, I mean, uh, in, in France, uh, oil workers are striking, which is leading to major shortages uh, at the pump. Uh, leading to you know to very you know very gro- you know increasingly angry scenes by you know by by uh, by drivers waiting to fill up and uh, you know and getting into arguments as to who's cutting ahead of line etc. Um, we're seeing uh, we're seeing an oil strike in Iran, which is primarily political but also economic as well. Uh, we're seeing a wave of strikes in uh, in Great Britain. So I think that things are the pressures are really building up. Um, and uh, against the background of growing financial instability. To your point, first first question is, how could the Biden administration really think that the paltry so-called compromise was actually of any value and that anybody would really buy into it is the first question. And then the second question is, as you've just laid out, not only are we having strikes in the United States, but there are strikes in France and other places. When you look, when you turn on your crystal ball, do you see labor gaining traction and regaining some of the strength and control that it had, say, in the United States in the 60s? Well, it's, it's, it's the, the process is just starting, first of all. I mean, uh, Back in the 1960s, uh, uh, I think that unions, unions, uh, union membership was around 30 or 35 percent in the in the private sector. Today, it's around, it's actually under five percent. Mm-hmm. So it's, it has fallen by six sevenths uh, over the last uh, 50 years. Uh, number one. So so unions have got a long way to go before they before they they recapture that that clout. But number two, I think that there's no doubt that workers are getting angry. They're they're being they're being pushed against the wall, and they're starting to push back. Um, you know, and and you know, the, and the reason that Biden thought he had a deal is that the is that the um, the the union leadership, the union bureaucracy, is so closely integrated into the Democratic Party that that he thought when he was talking to the. The, these union officials, you know, they used to be speaking to a fellow Democrat. They were all on the same team. They would all, you know, you know engage in mutual back scratching, and everything would work out. But he forgot about the workers, <laughs> <laughs> and the workers feel a bit differently. In fact, let me just let me let me quickly jump in and say 
the relationship between union membership and the political parties is contributes greatly to the uh, what has resulted in the downturn in union membership. That you, you a lot of union membership feels they they were and continue to be sold out by their representatives. Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, I mean, I mean, look what's happened. I mean, over the last 50 years, the union movement has been all but destroyed. Now, I mean, now the the the, the union official, the officialdom, you know, is doing quite well, and they're in bed with the Democrats, and they're making deals and and doing favors for one another, you know. But uh, but the but the rank and file has been forgotten, and and they have paid an enormous price. Uh, I mean, I mean, wages have been stagnant for literally half a century, um, and uh, and and working conditions have plum have plummeted, and and jobs have gotten crappier and crappier. Are we allowed to say that on the radio? By yes, the way? we are. That, that's <laughs> a good that's that's a good word. Yes. Okay. So so jobs have gotten crappier and crappier. Um, so so workers are upset. They're they're angry, and they're starting for the first time in decades to push back. Dan, you know, we talk about what's going on right now with the Ukrainian situation and that crisis and how that's affecting the world economy. But let's not forget, just before that, there were economics problems. And we were talking about um, the um, the lockdowns and COVID and how that affected the, fly, uh, the, 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 the world economy and things weren't looking good. However, if you recall, the October before COVID hit, the repo market crashed and the U.S. government started pumping $120 billion a month to save it then, while these things are of great consequence, weren't we already starting to see the contradictions of capitalism start to come home to roost before any of this hit? It's certainly many econo- economists argue we were on the way to a major crash then, Dan. Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, to me, we've had we've had 12 or 14 years of abnormally low interest rates and for much of the time actually negative real interest rates. Um, And that has created a completely weird and bizarre economy. I mean, Wall Street is made out like bandits. Uh, You know, um, uh, the housing real estate has gone insane. Um, uh, And um, and prices are rising. And the result of all this, 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 these, these subnormal interest rates has been to pour money into Wall Street and real estate operators while placing greater and greater stress on ordinary working people. I mean, housing costs are a huge part of the story. I mean, it, is, it has become prohibitively expensive to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, to, to maintain an adequate, you know, living space. This is why, this is why you have 35 year old kids living with their parents, um, cause they can't afford, uh, 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 an apartment. I mean, you, you know, you have, you had, you know, in Brooklyn, you have, you know, three or four, uh, young people living in like a, in a two or three bedroom apartment and they can bear and even splitting the rent three or four ways, they can still barely afford it. And so I think it's real hardship out there. And you throw on top of that the deindustrialization of America, so that we've moved from a uh, industrial-based economy to a financialized economy, and so that adds just uh, that that uh, exponentially exacerbates the situation. 
Yes, and, and now after after 14 years of this nonsense and of the and of this of this fantastic buildup on Wall Street, and by the way, the loss of any kind of market discipline as it pertains to Wall Street. So you know, so you had like you know young Silicon you know Valley uh, hotshots you know walking away with billions for the most ridiculous business ventures. I mean, I mean now finally that whole ridiculous edifice is starting to crack. And and we don't know, we don't know how the process will unfold, how far it will unfold, what the result will be. But all we know is that things are growing increasingly stable. I mean, listen, the uh, the, the British, the entire British pension system. Wait a minute, things are growing stable un- or unstable? I think you've been saying unstable. Unstable. Yeah. I'm okay. sorry. The, the entire British pension system is starting to crack wide open. And, and, you know, if that does break, I mean, the political consequences will be immense. Well, the other thing, Dan, is as the U.S. short, as usual, short-sightedly uh, condemns um, uh, Europe to, you know, a dystopian hellscape economically and really physically, um, they are one of our biggest customers. So we are a parasite that's killing the host as, you know, but we're a lot of people are sitting over here looking at that are reasonable people saying, wow, that's not, it's not going to work out. What the EU is doing is not going to work out for them. But what they're not taking into account is as one of our biggest customers, it's not going to work out well for us either, Dan. Well, yes, but the U.S., you know, for, first of all, the, the Wall Street Journal had an article a couple of weeks ago saying that, US, that, that European manufacturers are actually relocating to the United States. So that's a victory for, the, for, for America. Um, uh, uh, U.S. liquefied natural gas exports uh, to Europe have more than doubled over the last year. So the U.S. is making money in that way as well. Uh, so, 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 the, so the U.S. is feasting on the broken European economy. Uh, and 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 that's and, and and people are aware of that. There was a there, you know ten there was a ten thousand strong demonstration in Berlin over the weekend, uh, and uh, you know and there's there've been major demonstrations in, in Czechoslovakia and Moldova, uh, in Paris, etc. And um, we're going to see more and more of this kind this kind of stuff. Things are getting very hot out there. That is the bottom line. They are really heating up. And we have just about a minute left. To your point about the European economy manufacturing coming here and the sale of natural gas, many will argue that's really the intent of the United States here, was to cripple the European Union market and for the United States to gain a greater foothold in the international energy market. I, I, no, I'm not really sure if I'd go quite that far. Okay. Um, but 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 certainly certainly the U.S. has has has. I mean I, I mean I think the, I think the U.S. would like to have a healthy trading partner in the EU. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the 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 U.S. has has you know has behaved in a way which completely dis- disregards European interests. It it sparked this war in the Ukraine, which is you know which is wreaking havoc with the with the European economies, um, and now it's reaping certain benefits. I mean, you know, manufacturing is switching mm-hmm. to the U.S. from Europe. It's really a, an amazing development. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you.
Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in Antiwar.com entitled, Biden's Broken Promise to Avoid War with Russia May Kill Us All. On March 11th, 2022, Biden assured the American public and the world that the U.S. and its NATO allies would were not at war with Russia. Quote, we will not fight a war with Russia in Ukraine. Direct conflict between NATO and Russia is World War III, something we must strive to prevent. Well, Joe, where are we? And what would you call this? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq. And he's the co-author, along with Medea Benjamin, of this piece. Nick Davies, as always, Nick, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. You and uh, Medea write, it is widely acknowledged that U.S. and NATO officers are now fully involved in Ukraine's operational war planning, aided by a broad range of U.S. intelligence gathering and analysis to exploit Russia's military vulnerabilities, while Ukrainian forces are armed with U.S. and NATO weapons and trained up to the standards of other NATO countries. Uh, Nick, Scott Ritter has said that Russia defeated the Ukraine a long time ago. And now what we're dealing with is a NATO army armed by Ukrainians. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, I, I mean, this is a proxy war. And of course, um, you know, the, this imperial power, the United States, has a lot of experience at this, uh, you know. I mean, uh, certainly more South Vietnamese troops died in the Vietnam War than Americans did, and um, and you can, I mean, you can just go through each of these wars. Same same in Korea, the South Koreans, and and uh, but but. And all these wars over the last 20 years, from from the point where the United States invaded Iraq with an army of hundreds of thousands of Americans, they have gradually worked their way out of that situation in which American lives are on the line and and the government of the day has to take the political heat for that uh, into a situation where the United States goes to war w- with no no American lives at risk vir- virtually none uh, and and um Manages manages to create these situations where uh, other people, in this case, because the war is in their country, the Ukrainians, but but and 
likewise with the Iraqis in the in the war against ISIS. Um, but in, in every case now, the the actual cannon fodder on the U.S. side of each of these wars is 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 overwhelmingly uh, people from other countries, and and it, it, it's sort of incredible, really, that that they get away with this. But of course, every empire has has done this. The the, the British army had a million a million Indians fighting in World War Two and possibly even more in World War One, um, and uh, so some of them, when they were captured by the Japanese, ended up uh, fighting on the other side. Uh, but um, this is the, the this is and this and this keeps. All of this, you know, out of sight and out of mind for most Americans. Um, and here we are living in this illusion of peace while um, I, I guess the one contribution most of us make to this is our tax dollars that pay pay for all these weapons. Um, and... Um, it, it is it is relatively painless for most Americans. At least they're not aware they're not aware of the cost they pay in all the other things that that money could pay for, such as their own standard of living, their own their own wages, um, but but also the universal health care that 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 Americans don't have that virtually every other developed country has and all 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 so so it's not that when it's not that Americans aren't paying a cost for this it, it's just that they don't know they're paying a cost for it and nobody's telling them so um but what a yeah what a situation you know, Nick, let me add this. Um, we've been hearing more and more cries for peace. Admiral, um, uh, former Ch uh, Joint Chief of Staff, retired Admiral Mike Mullen, re recently said, we have to do everything we possibly can to try to get to the table to resolve this thing. He said he was particularly concerned that, about Joe Biden's comments about uh, a nuclear Armageddon. And he ended up by saying, it's time for the United States to supplement its military support for Ukraine with a diplomatic track and this is the important part, to manage this crisis before it spirals out of control. As you know, you can't control a war. You don't know what's going to happen. And um, the real danger here is that this could go, it could spread broader. Um, even that, we could be looking at starvation and people dying from freezing to death by the many thousands in Europe over the winter. So it's, it's a very dangerous situation. And now we're starting to hear more voices, powerful voices, uh, calling for some calm and resolution. I think that's a good thing. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as we wrote in a previous article, 66 uh, countries with the UN General Assembly representing the majority of the world's population were making, you know, desperate pleas and, and powerful 
uh, statements in favor of, uh, you know, immediate an immediate end to this war, immediate negotiations to, to um, you know, to to get a ceasefire and uh, and a peaceful restore peace. Um, <clears throat> but um, it it's it, the, the so the calls for peace are echoing around the world. And yet, and perhaps maybe partly because of that, uh, Biden has just come out and and said he said nothing nothing in Ukraine without Ukraine. In other words, um, I think I think that's the way he put it. It was a catchy phrase, obviously, but um, uh, basically, the U.S. is not going to tell. Ukraine to negotiate with the Russians. And the irony of that is that when Ukraine was negotiating with the Russians in March and April, the United States and the United Kingdom had no problem whatsoever going over there and telling them to stop negotiating. So so this is a sort of heads, heads, we, heads war wins and tails east loses story because uh you know now in the name of in the name of of not interfering in the name of the ukrainians autonomy um the u.s is willing to arm them to to fight until the entire country is destroyed and a million of them are dead so um you know this is this is really atrocious, and 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 I mean another another point about that is is that you know the U.S. and its allies are not only condemning this country to virtually endless war or total destruction; um, they're actually wrapping themselves in the Ukrainian flag and 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 assuming the moral high ground as they do that. And, you know, a lot of those countries speaking out at the UN General Assembly had a lot to say about that. They said that, uh, no, this is not what the UN Charter calls for. What the UN Charter calls for is for the peaceful resolution of conflicts through diplomacy and negotiations. But instead, as you know, the, in this article that we, that we just wrote, I mean, instead, we now have a rising, a rising danger of nuclear war. And this is incredible. We have gone from that statement that, that, Joe, that Joe Biden made in March, that we will not fight a war with Russia, to the point where we are fighting it. We are fighting it to the point... Uh, that there is a real risk of nuclear war. And, and we mentioned in the article, NPR interviewed a guy called Matthew Bunn, who's a nuclear weapons expert at Harvard, and he now estimates the chance of a nuclear weapons being used in Ukraine at 10 to 20%. In fact, I, I take I take a little issue w- with with that element of your article 
because he assigns that 20%, 10 to 20% chance to Russia using nuclear weapons. And, and before that point in the article, you quote Nikolai Petrushev, the head of the Russian Security Council, saying that Russia now knows it's fighting NATO in Ukraine. Then you, then you state that Putin has reminded the world that Russia has nuclear weapons and is prepared to use them. But as I understand the exchange of that, of that whole issue, it started in August with Tony Blinken being interviewed and being asked about the use of nuclear weapons. And Blinken said the United States will use them. I'm paraphrasing, but his point was the United States will use nuclear weapons if necessary. And and, and in response to what Blinken said, Putin said, look, we have them too. And so it's not that Putin has been threatening the use of nuclear weapons, Putin is merely responding to the threat by the United States and saying, you're not going to punk me. You're not going to bully me. I'll take this where you want to go. Right. And, and so I, I have I take issue with the way you all have framed that point in your article. We've got two minutes. Well, in, in, in that case, that, that I'm sure was true. Um, but that was not the first time that Putin has reminded um, the United States and its allies that, that Russia has nuclear weapons. And, and, um, and the fact is that they do have them, and they have a clear doctrine on their use, um, which, um, you know, Lavrov has occasionally said we will only use them in retaliation. Mm-hmm. But that which which is their doctrine. That, 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 well, that's not the whole story, as as with the U.S. as well. I mean, the U.S. has an even more open-ended um, doctrine, which essentially ha- has no limits whatsoever. But, you know, what Russia says, said, this is in a doctrine spelled out, a decree spelled out by um, President Putin in 2020, that if the... If the um, <clears throat> That they will use use nuclear weapons if the existence of the state is at risk. In other words, rather than right. see their state, their their independence, their existence as an independent state uh, destroyed, they will use they will use nuclear weapons before they allow that to happen. Okay, and that is that is their doctrine. Okay, and and, and so. This is where we have a contradiction in the U.S. policy, because the U.S. policy is now essentially to defeat Russia, and yet Russia has is absolutely crystal clear that they will not be, they will not suffer an existential defeat because they will use they will use nuclear weapons before they allow that to happen. Nick Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks. Thanks again. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Chris Hedges writes in Consortium News, The Puppets and the Puppet Masters, the judicial proceedings against Julian Assange give a faux legality to the state persecution of the most important and courageous journalist of our generation. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's the co-editor of Popular Resistance, Dr. Margaret Flowers. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you. It's always wonderful to be with you. So uh, Chris opens, uh, Merrick Garland and those who work in the Department of Justice are the puppets, not the puppet masters. They are the facade, the fiction that the longstanding persecution of Assange has something to do with justice. Like the high court in London, they carry out an electorate, uh, Judy CIA uh, pantomime. They debate arcane legal nuances to distract from the Dickinson farce where a man who has not committed a crime, who is not a U.S. citizen, can be extradited under the Espionage Act and sentenced to life in prison for the most courageous and consequential journalism of our generation. Dr. Margaret Flowers, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think this is a really important piece, and and Chris really nails it. You know, the case of Julian Assange really kind of epitomizes what the you know how the United States operates. I think often of you know how the U.S. is always saying we have to you know be part of the rules-based order. Well, according to the U.S., it's we make the rules and you follow our orders. And Assange defied that. He exposed the war crimes of the state, provided an avenue for people to give that information. And and let's remember that the information on WikiLeaks has been used by major publications in the United States. Um, you know he's he's a he's a publisher he's a journalist and he hasn't committed any crime but but to the United States they have to demonstrate don't anybody anywhere in the world dare to expose our crimes or we can come after you and put you in prison and torture you literally he's been tortured uh, you know for the rest of your life. You know what I think this is an interesting story and what I think is interesting about it is that um, Chris really gets to the point that the things that we are seeing, the lawfare that we are being seeing, seeing that we are seeing in the process that we're all talking about is not the foundation of the problem. The problem is that the national security state has so much power that it can, it can command all of these forces. And that's what it's doing to go after Julian Assange, Dr. Flowers. Right. And I think, you know, and he also makes the point about the, you know, the corporate coup. And I think, and that's part of that, right? Um, this is something that Kevin Zeese and I used to talk about all the time. Kevin had researched quite a bit General Smedley Butler. It's a story that's not often told of an actual attempt to conduct a coup uh, back, I think, in the, in the 1930s or late 1920s. And General Butler, Butler exposed that. And so it's kind of like, well, the U.S. realized, well, we can't do this openly. So what they did was they spent the next decades uh, doing it silently under the radar and actually seizing all of the institutions of power in the United States to be used for the corporate elites, for the wealthy elites. And to that point, Chris writes, the engine driving the lynching of Julian is not here on Pennsylvania Avenue. It is in Langley, Virginia, located at a complex we will never be allowed to surround, the CIA. It is driven by a secretive interstate one where we do not count in the mad pursuit of empire and ruthless exploitation because the machine of this modern Leviathan was exposed by Julian and WikiLeaks. 
the machine demands revenge. I think that paragraph is brilliant. Right. And that, you know, the, the CIA, you know, it has a, a budget that's secret. Um, it has its own army, its own mercenaries, its own weapons. And the things that are done in the CIA, members of Congress don't even aren't even aware of. I think John Kiriakou, who also spoke, um, talks about that. He's, you know, former CIA. And he um, he spoke to us when we were in the Venezuelan embassy about the, the coup department within the CIA that basically will plan how to overthrow governments around the world. They have so much, you know, audacity. He, he walked in one time and one of the people was creating a flag for the country that they that the U.S. was going to overthrow. So um, it, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of resources, and they have zero accountability. It's an interesting article in how he, he really gets into the terrible things that the CIA has done, this history that they have, and how that, you know, now the people who are concerned about Julian Assange, who really are concerned about the effects that this case is going to have on both him and all of us as far as Constitution, et cetera, need to look in the background, need to start um, maybe complaining about going to the source. Uh, Dr. Flowers. Yeah, I think something that's really important for all of us to be aware of is that the charges against Julian Assange, the extradition request for Julian Assange is all coming from the United States. Currently, it's in the hands of the Biden administration. And so the Department of Justice under President Biden could drop the charges. They could end the extradition order, and this would all be over. So this is something that we, as people who live in the United States, we're the ones who really have the responsibility to pressure our government to free Julian Assange. And it's sad to see the lack of uh, outcry by the, the media who are all going to be affected, but so many of them actually have kind of already capitulated to the power structure, haven't they? Um, but but they're setting their own demise if they're not speaking out against the case of Julian Assange. And we are all setting our demise as well, because this is a power struggle for the right to know, the right to, to know what our government is doing uh, and what's actually happening. And, and the state doesn't want us to know that. So this is fundamental for us as well. It's also important in this piece how... Uh, Chris ties in so many other areas of the world. Uh, I've spent two decades as a foreign correspondent on the outer reaches of empire in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and the Balkans. I'm acutely aware of the savagery of empire, how the brutal tools of repression are first tested on those France Fanon called the wretched of the earth. Wholesale surveillance, torture, coups, black sites, black propaganda, militarized police, militarized drones, assassination wars. I mean, he he lays this out uh, so clearly. Right. And I think that's another critical point is to understand that the tools that the United States uses abroad uh, to oppress peoples, to you know get access to resources, um, those tools are then brought back and used here. We see it through the 1033 program that provides uh, military equipment to police departments across the country. They don't have to justify why they're requesting these tools. And of course, if they get these tools, they're going to use them. We see it in you know, the COINTEL program and how that continues today with the uh, FBI raids of activists uh, you know, here in the United States of uh you know, we see it in in the in the legal system here, which is which is a joke because the courts can literally control 
what people are allowed to talk about so that you can't even talk about the actual facts of what happened in your situation if the judge decides that, that they don't want you to do that. Um, so I think that, that we have to understand that all of these tools do come back against us uh, ultimately. And so this is why the struggle, you know, it just has to be one that people in the United States have to understand that the struggles of peoples around the world are our struggles as well. And we have the power to change it. Chris also says that if um, Julian is extradited and sentenced, and he refers to this as a near certainty, he says it means that those of us who have published classified material, as I did when I worked for the New York Times, will become criminals. Here's the only thing I would say about that. Um, The people at the New York Times and the Washington Post aren't afraid right now. Why? Because they're stenographers for the state. I really believe that rather than the government just going after the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, it will be the day-to-day citizen journalists like you or I who are publishing a website or doing a radio show and that they arbitrarily apply those standards so that they're not – the the standards for getting charged for for, uh, releasing classified material – will not be applied to somebody at the Washington Post. It'll be applied to Margaret Flowers or Garland Nixon or Dr. Wilmer Leon. But, but you, have to, you have to also factor into that the stifling effect that this will have on the Times yeah. and the Post and so yeah. on and so forth. Dr. Flowers. Right. I mean, it, it will have that impact on, on anybody. But, you know, they're already doing that to some extent. If you look at the social media suppression of our websites, of the uh, the search engine suppression of our websites, um, we're already being silenced, you know, in a way. And, and that is, also, you know, completely done in, in coordination with the state. I mean, who owns the Washington Post? Right? It's Jeff Bezos, who also works with the CIA. Um, so, you know, I, I think but but to your point, Yes, it is. Um, it is going. It's having a chilling effect. It will have more of a chilling effect. And we're also, but we are seeing it with people who are in the corporate media. Look at what just happened to Katie Halper at the Hill. And then I think there was a Palestinian journalist at the New York Times who was just fired uh, for speaking out in defense of Palestine. Um, the state just doesn't tolerate dissent, and it seems like it's tolerating it less and less. Once perfected on people of color overseas, these tools migrate back to the homeland by hollowing out our country from the inside through deindustrialization, austerity, deregulation, wage stagnation, the abolition of unions, massive expenditures. He goes on, the tyranny imposed on others is imposed on us. So those that sit back and look at what's happening overseas and say, well, that doesn't matter to me because it's happening in Ukraine or it's it's happening in South Africa, it comes back to haunt you at home. Or as Malcolm said, the uh, the chickens do come home to roost. Right. I think, you know, another fundamental thing to understand is that in the, the global structure that we live in, capital, money can move wherever it wants to go. A corporation sees that they have laxer labor laws in one place or laxer environmental regulations and then in another place, they can move there. People do not have that ability to move. And so, you know, if it's their, if they, they can exploit us to whatever extent they want to exploit us. And, and we see that happening in the United States already, the fact that we don't have universal health care, that we don't have enough affordable housing for people, that we don't have free education through college here, that, you know, people are, are economically insecure, they're food insecure, they're water insecure. I mean, uh, the, the state can do whatever it wants. We look at the the massive Pentagon spending that, that you know, rises by 
incredible amounts every year, but yet austerity for all the social needs that we have here. And then if you if you do that to people, you also have to be able to control them through these threats, through the surveillance, uh, through keeping them insecure so they don't have time to fight back. Um, this is all connected, and it's why we have to be, you know, recognize this and aware of it and be fighting back and pushing back. You know, Margaret, as we see the U.S. and its allies attempting to drag out this thing in Ukraine, it brings to mind Julian Assange's statements about Afghanistan, where people were talking about win-win, and he said, the goal is not to win. Endless war is the goal so that they can take money out of the national treasury and put it into the hands of their uh, 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 criminal friends. Uh, One minute, Margaret. Right. And then just the kind of illusion that, you know, Washington has right now that the U.S. can hang on to this power, that the U.S. can actually, uh, you know, uh, get the achieve the goals that it's trying to achieve. That just isn't going to happen. The world is changing, but the Pentagon is going to continue to throw more money and more weapons at it. Uh, They're not going to they're not going to change course. Dr. Margaret Flowers, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 